This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by the DeBeaumont Foundation, supporting bold solutions for healthier communities. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Rite Aid CEO Hayward Donegan, Delta Airlines Chief Health Officer Dr. Henry Ting, and other leaders joined the Post to discuss how private companies are responding to the many health challenges of the day. Let's listen. Well, good morning and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, a health policy reporter and author of the Health 202 newsletter. And this morning we're talking about the path forward in public health and business. And I'm pleased to welcome as my first guest, Hayward Donegan. She's the president and CEO of Rite Aid. Welcome to Washington Post Live. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. So I want to start off by asking you about a program or an expansion of a program that the Biden administration announced a couple of weeks ago. And this was, uh, you know, the idea of shipping big shipments of the vaccines directly to pharmacies such as yours. How is that program going? Have you received shipments so far? Well, it's been um, so exciting to be a part of this federal program. And um, as I mentioned earlier, in your in your video, we were um, among pharmacies selected, two pharmacies per state selected in five states for this distribution. And um, it, it's been a little unfortunate because of the weather. Uh, they have had some trouble getting the vaccines distributed uh, as broadly as we had hoped. And it has resulted in us having to reschedule. Um, the clients that were the customers who were scheduled for these particular doses, not the ones that had been state or jurisdiction allocated. So it's been unfortunate, you know, it's between the weather and all of the logistics, um, we just haven't received the doses that we had assumed we would. Um, it does look, uh, that was for one week, it does look as if we are going to be getting our allocation this coming week. So <clears throat> we're excited to get back on track and, and get our customers vaccinated. We did get a Pfizer shipment and we weren't actually prepared to do Pfizer because of the deep freeze situation. We've only been doing Moderna and we have administered um, almost 360,000 vaccines just in the last few weeks. Um, but we were able in one week to pivot and actually get our folks shooting the Moderna, I'm sorry, the Pfizer vaccine just this week. So that was exciting. And I just think it just goes to show that these pharmacies, not just us, all of the pharmacies, but us in particular, I'm so proud of our teams. They've not only um, quickly pivoted to administer two types of vaccines in different settings, clinics, parking lots, and in the pharmacy, but also all of the technology that we, and we have had some hiccups, but we have um, launched our own scheduling tool. And um, we are really excited about the fixes and the enhancements that are going in literally on a daily basis. And so just to be clear on the timeline here, when were you all expecting that original shipment of direct vaccines and are you saying that next week you're expecting to be able to get those vaccines and start administering them? Yeah, so it was, um, if you think about it, it was sort um, I don't, I'm not sure these are the exact dates, but call it sort of last, last week scheduling for Wednesday, Thursday, 
and then we had to reschedule those and push those back. We were able, when we found out we weren't going to get the next shipment, um, to actually move the schedules, move these people into Saturday and Sunday. So, you know, think about it as sort of a week of disruption. And, um, but everyone has been rescheduled. So we just notified all of our customers. It was about 35,000 to start with. We, we got in touch with all but 136 customers to let them know that they were going to have to be rescheduled and were rescheduled. Well, and I know, so for most of, of this year, it, the vaccines have been distributed by the states and then I assume allocated to, to folks like you, but what have been, I guess, the challenges around that system and what changes could be made to sort of ease that process? Yes, yeah, so we have most of those 365,000 doses that I referred to were through the state and local jurisdictions. So we've been vaccinating since January. And, um, you know, there's been well-known hiccups with the different states' eligibility and, and technology systems and call centers, mostly just because of volume. I mean, you know, we, we opened up a call center ourselves. Uh, we, didn't even, we didn't even publicize it other than through grassroots. Um, and we got, I think, 300,000 calls in a day. So we're, you know, everyone's slammed. The, um, the systems are, you know, just there's millions and millions of people trying to get through to get scheduled. So the, the demand is so intense that, you know, that we can, it's, it's hard for any one technology or call center to keep up with it at this point. Um, but once we get people scheduled, uh, we have had a really, really seamless and I think excellent experience for our customers. And, and I'm saying that because I get the customer feedback myself. I get emails from customers and we monitor our call center and feedback and we have a survey tool. So we're getting really, really good feedback. It's going um, really well in the stores and in the clinics. So it's really just been a matter of the scheduling demand and the supply limitations. Well, and I know one of the challenges also has been that there have been slightly different eligibility guidelines in all of the states. And I know there's been some tension between trying to make sure people wait their turn in line to get the vaccine versus making sure that no vaccines are wasted and getting all of the shots in arms. How have you directed your pharmacists to kind of deal with that? And how do you kind of think about that? Well, it's um, for us, we're not at this point, um, generally scheduling ourselves and checking the eligibility it's going through this it still goes through the state and jurisdiction systems and it's you know i'll say generally it's an honor code that people are saying you know they're a healthcare worker or they're saying that they have an underlying health condition and um you know obviously we can check age but it is an honor system and it is being administered by the states and the local jurisdictions and it is different. So for example, in Virginia, Virginia is open to under 65 with health conditions, but, but not so, you know, in New York, uh, New York has got one set of criteria. Pennsylvania has another, Philly has yet another sometimes, it depends on the week. Um, uh, Chesapeake, Virginia may have a different set of guidelines even than 
Richmond, Virginia. So it, it is still variable and it does still have to be monitored by, you know, those who are um, enforcing those guidelines, which really isn't us. Um, once the appointment is made, we are responsible for administering that appointment. And um, the, the people are still scheduling through, in our case, generally scheduling through the states and local jurisdiction sites. Are you aware of any instances in which your pharmacies have had to throw away vaccine doses because yeah. they were going oh, to expire sorry. or go bad? We have been really, really relentlessly focused on the protocols to make sure that does not happen. So we do have many, many, many days we have excess at the end of the day. And I think that's pretty typical. And there is a protocol. Um, that the CDC has for us and all of the pharmacies as to what to do with those extra doses. So, you know, it could be call, you know, call the customers who are over 65. It could be um, actually give your own pharmacist the vaccine as they are frontline healthcare workers. Um, you know, so it could be just call your customers. It could be give them to your front end. If you can't do that, then you could give them to your front end staff you know, that do the retail side of the business. And then at the, you know, at the end of the day, most states and jurisdictions in the CDC would say, give it to whoever is walking by because you do not want to waste a dose. And once we give it to someone at the end of the day, even if they haven't been scheduled, we will guarantee they will get their second dose scheduled. I want to ask you sort of a broad question about the rollout in general. And, you know, it's been criticized as being too slow. Uh, on the other hand, we're in a situation at the end of February where tens of millions of people, of Americans, have received a dose. Last year at this time, we didn't even think we'd have a coronavirus vaccine. Um, so, you know, have people been, I guess, overly harsh perhaps in judging the rollout or, or conversely, maybe fair in some of their criticisms? You know, I think it's a balance. First of all, I think we do owe the prior administration a lot of credit for getting us these vaccines in, in really, really short order. And really thankful to Pfizer, Moderna, uh, who've been working on this vaccine for years and years, not knowing it would be this vaccine, but working on the technology to make this happen. And for Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca and all of the other companies who are accelerating to have us get the opportunity to have a vaccine is an absolute miracle. And I think there's a lot of gratitude there. I, I think also that we probably should have understood that the demand would be super high and that the technology, maybe, you know, we could have let the private sector do some of the technology call center work because it's really there that I think people are getting frustrated. I think people know you know, they all want the vaccine. I don't mean everybody, but many, many people, hundreds of millions of people want the vaccine. And I think the frustration has largely been that they, and, and frankly with us as well, and I have my own, you know, I, we haven't been perfect in the way we've done this either. But the frustration that I hear is, you know, I can't get through, I can't get through to a person, the system is crashing, or, you know, I'm trying to fill out my appointment and somebody beats me to the punch or whether it's I get rescheduled. I mean, I think that people are in a, a highly agitated state and frustrated, and especially for older people who really aren't proficient 
with using technology, we all, we all could have done a better job. And so I think that's the core of the issue. I do think that in general, people are understanding. Um, I, I, I might not say patient, but people understand the situation. I just think they want clarity of knowledge about what to do, when to do it. And, and we all could have done a better job and we're all trying to do a better job. Well, and so that registration process that you're talking about and the frustrations there, what are some, do you have some thoughts on specific ways that that registration process could be eased uh, perhaps by the states uh, in, in helping people, you know, get from that process of trying, of seeking the vaccine and then actually getting it in their arm? Well, I think there, there are a whole lot of issues that we're all working on, um, us, Rite Aid especially included. So we, we are doing daily sprints every day. We are um, improving our uh, website scheduler experience. So for example, now we're, we're putting in a release that if you are filling out your paperwork for your appointment, you've already identified the day and the time that you want the appointment, we'll hold that space for you until you finish your paperwork so that someone can't beat you to the punch. Uh, we're also rolling out Spanish. Uh, you know, we're acutely aware that the Hispanic community is deeply affected by this. And so it's an imperative that we have Spanish call center, Spanish speaking call center agents and also Spanish on our site. And so we're working on that. Of course, older people really not. My parents can use websites just fine and they're in their 80s, but some people do really struggle with that. And also some people don't have access to the Internet. So it's an imperative that we not only have a call center, but other ways for people to schedule that might be older or not able to access the website. So call centers are becoming increasingly important. So these are all the things, um, including scalability. So for example, making sure that, you know, millions of people can access your website and it won't crash. These are the things that we're all working on. Well, and of course, the big news on vaccines this week is that Johnson & Johnson has applied for EUA and uh, there has been the analysis from the FDA that it's working well and perhaps could get EUA as soon as tomorrow. Uh, does that news make you optimistic that allotments are going to increase and help you to start meeting demand a little bit better? Yes, I, I think most of us, now it is a, a little bit of a week by week situation, so we're, we're not pin pinning on a month right now anymore. But most of us believe that there will be a glut of vaccines, excuse me, by the summer, maybe late summer, maybe fall, but sometime this year. And I heard Dr. Gottlieb just mentioning this morning. And so that's the general consensus. I think the interesting thing right now is going to be, you know, we get J&J, &J, it's only one shot. Um, are people going to want to ask for this vaccine versus that vaccine? Right now, of course, people can't be picky because it's whatever vaccine you can get. But it will be, I think, interesting to see if there comes a point in time, and I think there will be, where people actually select the vaccine that they want. And uh, they may want J&J because &J it's one shot. They may want Moderna because they think it's more effective. Uh, and, and it looks like even Pfizer right now isn't going to have the deep freeze issue. So I think all this just is such good news and so exciting because, you know, it does look like there's a world where everyone who wants to get vaccinated can in this year. 
And how many people are your pharmacies vaccinating every week at this point? And how is that ramped up? And then do you have kind of a goal or aim for, for vaccinations per week that you'd like to achieve at some point in the next few months? Yeah, we're really underutilized right now because we have, um, at least last I counted, 1160 of our 2400 stores and that number does change daily doing vaccines. So we're not even, even our stores aren't doing all the vaccines. So we're currently doing where we have an allotment about 20 vaccines a day per store. And the federal allotment would have allowed us to do 100 doses a week. We can do much, much more than that. I mean, we could do as much, you know, if you think about clinics um, and all of our stores, we could do 200 doses a day per store at 2,400 stores and maybe clinics on top of that. So we, are, we have significant excess capacity to take on significant amount of additional vaccines. And I, I would assume that the other pharmacies are in the same situation. So I don't really think capacity is the issue, it's supply. And, and sort of a broad question, how has the pandemic overall shaped your own approach and strategy to leading Rite Aid? Well, it's pretty amazing. I mean, I, I really say to people, this was a this continues to be a very significant turnaround. So this is a, a tough job. Um, it, it's a it's a company that is in a very significant turnaround. And to have you be in a turnaround and then have a pandemic is pretty scary. On the other hand, I have to honestly say I think COVID is making us a better company. Um, it's accelerating um, our, like, like everybody, it has significantly accelerated our digital work, um, whether it be buy online, pick up and store, our e-commerce um, capabilities and our, you know, pharmacy pay and go and Rite Aid app and all of that. Um, it's also, we, we've always been a purpose and mission and values driven company. And you know, I can tell you right now that our pharmacists are practically in tears on a daily basis, thinking about the fact that they have literally led the way in testing and vaccinations, um, as all pharmacies in this country have been. You know, there's no bigger purpose than to be a pharmacist in the middle of the the the, the century's most significant public health crisis. So it has really, I think, caused us to significantly up our game. I think it's propelled us forward. But I can tell you that, you know, we're dealing with a significant number of headwinds given the pandemic in the middle of a turnaround. So it's been a 24 by 7 job for a lot of us. Well, and what do you see as, uh, for our last question, what do you see as, you know, some of the enduring uh, effects from, from the pandemic in terms of the services that you offer and how you offer them? Yes, I. this is really the exciting point because despite all the headwinds and the bumps and the pandemic, we will be doing these vaccines forever. I mean, I, I think, you know, we've, we have been significant immunizers already. You know, people kind of sometimes forget that we do. Um, shingles vaccines, we do pneumonia vaccines, everyone knows we do flu, and we do a whole myriad of vaccines already. This will just be another annual, maybe two or three shot 
vaccine that, that's in our arsenal for probably the rest of our lives. Uh, I don't see COVID going away. Maybe it will, let's hope, but I don't think it will. And so uh, I think we will also always be doing COVID testing, just like we do flu testing. So actually, at the end of the day, when you add all of the new technologies we've created, our scheduling system, by the way, which we created for COVID, but now we're actually going to start scheduling for all vaccines, which we never used to do. So all these tools, all this engagement, and all of these new customers coming into our stores, because most of these people coming for vaccines and testing were not Rite Aid customers before. So I think when you look at our new merchandising strategy, um, our Elixir business, and then our Rite Aid um, pharmacy business, that this is going to end up being upside, all upside for our, our company. But, you know, it's it's been a tough year in in the short term. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time, so we're going to have to leave things there. But thanks so much for joining us. Hey, we're Don again. It was a great discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Uh, please stay with us. I'll be back in a couple minutes with Google's Chief Health Officer, Dr. Karen DeSalvo, uh, just a few minutes. So see you then. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Good morning. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Luann Heinen with Business Group on Health. Here today with Brian Castrucci of the De Beaumont Foundation and Ron Getzel of the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Welcome to you both. We're here today to discuss a report that two of you collaborated on, just released, Seven Ways Business Can Align with Public Health for Bold Action and Innovation. Now this report offers strategies for business leaders to strengthen the health of communities and help ensure America's long-term economic prosperity. Brian, can you tell us why the De Beaumont Foundation, the nation's largest foundation focused on state and local public health, is interested in fostering collaboration with business? Throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, we've lost 500,000 American lives so far and 100,000 businesses. The pandemic has laid bare the inextricable link between our health and our economy. At the De Beaumont Foundation, we want every community to achieve its optimal health, and we know that every business has a critical role to play in achieving that goal. In the video you just saw, Larry Fink's letter to CEOs echoed this belief and pushed it into the broader public discourse. Uh, right now, we need business leaders to help promote vaccine confidence and to support mask wearing and social distancing. As we move beyond COVID, we look to business leaders to use their political influence to address systemic inequities and rebuild our public health infrastructure because they know that good health really is good business. Picking up on Brian's comments, Ron, um, what are the top one or two things business leaders should be thinking about doing right now? Yeah, thanks, Luann. So if you think back to the spring of 2020, uh, we were all facing massive crises. We were all suffering. So with the support of the, the Beaumont Foundation, we asked, what can we do now to address these many crises? And as importantly, what can we do to avert future crises? Because we know they're going to happen. 
So coincidentally, in the previous year, the spring of 2019, we released a report with the Bipartisan Policy Center that made a very strong business case for business and public health collaboration. That was even before COVID-19 hit. One recommendation from that report was that public health needs to prepare a clear and concise ask of business and also explain what's in it for the typical business owner. So in the summer of 2020, as the pandemic was raging, we brought together 40 business and public health leaders, including executives from Disney, Goodyear, IBM, Sodexo, USAA, and discussed how to articulate that ask. We said, tell us how can the business community support public health in this fight against COVID-19, and how can we collectively prepare for the next crisis? So the report that we released on Tuesday answers that question with seven broad recommendations, along with some very specific actions where businesses can take the lead. And to summarize the top three, number one, put out the fire of COVID-19 by amplifying and reinforcing credible and scientifically based guidance. It turns out in the United States, people believe their employers more so than they do the government. Number two, improve the health and well-being of your employees so that they are better protected against the virus as well as non-communicable diseases like diabetes, heart disease, cancer, mental health problems. Employers can do a lot by sponsoring evidence-based workplace health and well-being programs. Number three, improve the health of your communities. Help your communities become more livable and resilient. Partner with your public health agencies. So we had four other recommendations in the report along with concrete action steps that employers can take. So Ron, you've spent a good part of your career working at the intersection of business and public health. Why is this time different and how can we make sure that the economic impact of lack of preparedness never happens again? So Luann, I think it is different now because we're all feeling the pain and business leaders recognize more and more the link between public health and the economy. They're leaning forward and embracing their corporate social responsibility by addressing broader societal issues. Make no mistake, businesses are still accountable to their shareholders, but many leaders also now recognize that they're accountable to their employees, communities, and customers. They're seriously thinking about how their business practices affect these other stakeholders' health and well-being. And by the way, being socially responsible may also help them from a purely financial standpoint because demonstrating that you care about your people and communities, you attract top talent, motivate employees to be mission-driven, improve your brand, and you may even bolster your stock prices for result. And we even have some research showing that. Okay, so we've heard why business and public health should collaborate and some ideas for how they may do that and take action together, especially in the shadow of COVID-19. Brian, looking ahead, what does alignment between business and public health look like particularly when we're no longer dealing with the pandemic? We are going to need to reckon with the understanding that to some degree, the devastation that we've seen as a result of COVID-19 was preventable. Decades of underinvestment in our public health infrastructure and systemic injustices have created vulnerabilities that must be addressed. We need to recognize that our nation's safety, security, and economic prosperity are dependent on us making transformative change. Now, during COVID-19, businesses have stepped up. Manufacturing plants 
have taken to producing masks and hand sanitizers, and restaurants have turned into community kitchens. Many businesses have offered marketing, techni technical, and logistical expertise to support vital public health and vaccine distribution campaigns. These, though, are short-term fixes. I look forward to working with business leaders who realize long-term change must lift up our public health system and address socioeconomic disparities and racial justice. We can do this by strengthening partnerships with local public health departments, pushing policies that impact deep-rooted disparities, and advocating for a modern public health workforce. Together, business and public health won't just get us back to normal, they're going to help us build back better. Well, that's a call to action. Thank you for that, Brian. And it's a wrap. Thank you for joining us today. Please be sure to check out the new report at debeaumont.org. And now we'll turn it back over to the Washington Post. And now back to Washington Post Live. Well, welcome back. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, and I'm delighted to introduce my next guest, Dr. Karen DeSalvo, who's the Chief Health Officer at Google Health. Welcome to the program. Well, good morning, Paige. Delighted to be here. I want to start off by asking you about something that was announced just this week, which is a huge database of information on coronavirus cases, which I know is uh, getting started with funding from Google. Can you tell us about that database, Google's involvement, what you're contributing, and what you hope to accomplish with it? Well, I love that you started there. It's a wonderful example of partnership between public health and academia and technology companies like Google. Um, it's a, a way that we are able to advance the global surveillance and global understanding of this pandemic, and we hope that it will help understand the global impacts of future outbreaks or uh, hopefully not, but potential pandemics. And so we partnered with academic institutions like Northeastern and Johns Hopkins to see that those um, epidemiology faculty had access to a worldwide database of anonymized cases that would inform them of not only the patterns of, of the outbreak, but ways that they could begin to interrupt the outbreak. And so we're really excited to have that in their hands and see what kind of important work they can do, not only to help end this pandemic, uh, but also, as, as you noted, to think about how this becomes a foundation for how we can be helpful going forward uh, in the world in partnership with academia and public health, because pandemics uh, are, are bigger than any one sector alone. But quite honestly, uh, public health is what we do together as a society to create the conditions in which everyone can be healthy. So everyone needs to partner um, towards public health. And this is just one of the ways that we've been doing this during the pandemic, and we look forward to continued partnerships. And I, I, in addition, I know last month you announced a huge amount of spending on the vaccine distribution effort, including opening some actual vaccination sites at Google facilities. Can you update us on how that's going and where these sites are located? Happy to. Maybe I'll just step back for a second and um, put it in the big picture, which is that some um, now 13 months ago, <clears throat> when, when it seemed pretty clear that the pandemic was going to erupt across the global stage, um, Google knew that um, as a consumer company, millions of people were going to come to us every day looking for information about the pandemic, about COVID, just as they do coming to us for information on many topics, including their own health. And 
as a public health person, I know certainly that um, one of the most important jobs in any kind of a crisis, including a public health crisis, is to get good information to the public so they know how to stay safe, keep their communities safe, and information just gives them that sense of agency of, of what they can do in order to, to help themselves and, and help others. So we began a process of lifting up, amplifying, sharing information from authoritative sources like the CDC, state health agencies. We wanted to help make sure we were getting that good authoritative information out to the public, not creating it ourselves, but certainly helping to, to lift up, raise up the, those messages. So we've done this throughout the pandemic about, the, about COVID itself, uh, about testing sites, the vaccine uh, information is, is, is yet another way that we want to be helpful because we want to encourage people to get vaccinated when it's their turn. We want to see that there's an equitable process and do as much as we can to drive that and facilitate so people get, can get the information that they need about where to go to get vaccinated. And so starting many months ago, actually, we began working with a number of, of parties, including the CDC and others, to understand when and how and what would be most useful for us. And it seemed that information on our surfaces like search and maps and YouTube, um, as well as opportunities to provide resources to community-based organizations and local public health to help them get their message out. We, we call those ads grants, as well as direct funding to community-based organizations working on equity. And then uh, in, in the last bucket is also making sure that space um, or facilities would not be a barrier to people getting vaccinated. We offered up our spaces in, in all of our offices across the U.S. and in fact across the world. Um, as a venue for community pods, for community vaccination sites. And we look forward to opening those not only in places where we have our headquarters like California or other offices like in Washington or New York, but uh, we also have data centers and other locations in the middle of the country. So like many other businesses, I think we just stand ready to be helpful with the tools and assets that we have, but for Google especially because of the importance of having good information out to the public, we think a lot about our surfaces like search and YouTube and maps as a way to make sure when people are looking for info that they can get um, that information that public health authorities want to make sure that they're seeing. Well, and so many people, of course, are still waiting their turn in line to get the coronavirus vaccine. Um, but should companies, should this be something that companies mandate and will Google require that its employees get vaccinated when they're able to? Well, Google is not going to mandate their employees get vaccinated, but we're certainly encouraging it. Um, and, and we're using a number of the strategies that um, other companies, I believe, are using and certainly that we think will be helpful out in the public domain. And, you know, again, uh, leaning on my experience as not only a doctor, but as a public health practitioner, uh, so much of, of this story of, of vaccine uh, hesitancy and confidence is about having a trusted uh, source of information, but also a trusted messenger. So for us, we want to make sure we're that trusted source of information. So those messengers on the front line, when they're in that exam room or uh, sitting next to somebody in church or uh, having that conversation with their pod, has good information to share, build confidence in what is normal in vaccine process. Um, how, how do people understand how, how, what is the scientific and regulatory natural flow? So they understand that we didn't, for example, sacrifice safety for speed as we all, as the world developed COVID vaccines. 
And then also um, to help uh, reduce friction, as we would say. Um, and that means just to take away any of the confusion or barriers that might make it harder when you're ready to get vaccinated to get vaccinated. So we'll be applying that for our employees because we care and we want them to get vaccinated, but also wanting to do that for community because we say as community goes, we go. We really want to make sure that this is, we're thinking holistically about, about getting about getting everyone vaccinated. And I'll just give you a very concrete example that's um, uh, hit the news today, which is um, about Vaccine Finder, which is the CDC's selected site for people to go uh, find vaccines. It's tried and true. It's been there for us for a long time um, for influenza and other sources of vaccination. And now it's gonna be showing COVID vaccines. We've been partnering with them and are ready to have that, that data available on maps. Um, but we also are, are wanting to direct people to the Vaccine Finder site as we lift up on our own maps, um, the information about COVID vaccines. So many ways that we're encouraging, that we're facilitating, that we want to build confidence, um, not only for our own employees, but also for the community. And we always want to do that in partnership with public health. I know Google's CEO has extended the company's work from home period to September of this year. But seeing as how the vaccine rollout is going, do you still anticipate that that will be the return date or could that be moved? This is a big topic. Um, first of all, I'll just share that um, what some people may not know that Google went home to went to work from home early. We uh, knew that we probably could work from home. Um, we felt that it was an important part of our civic duty to contribute to the public's health. To, um, to be a leader in social distancing, because if you think back to last March, that was the biggest tool we had in the toolbox was to keep people apart as we learned how to have other tools to support and protect the community. So we've been at work from home for some time. We'll stay that way um, for most employees around the world uh, into September. And we are going to continue to do everything we can to see that there's uh, not only vaccinations happening in the U.S. and in other countries around the world, but also that uh, we're being supportive to the public health um, to public health agencies with data and information. And um, we have some additional work that we do with the scientific enterprise and with medicine. Again, just making sure that we're helping in every way that we possibly can. You asked about timeline, and I feel pretty confident that if um, things continue to go as planned, uh, that the scientific work that's been done, which is an extraordinary feat in history, that, that not only the speed, but the thoughtfulness and the collaboration across borders to get us to a place where we now have multiple vaccines available around the world that are, are useful. We're getting a sense that it's easier to distribute those vaccines. That people may be reading that we're learning the cold chain requirements may not be as, as stringent as we thought. And certainly we're getting better at supply chain. It's sort of getting it out into the field in and in more kinds of sites around the community so that no matter your language, no matter where you live, that there's going to be more equity in the process of, of enabling people to get vaccinated. So I am very optimistic about the efficacy and the uh, and the ability of people to get to get vaccinated, um, building upon this really strong uh, work that we're seeing already happening across the U.S. But what about the possibility of of workers being able to uh, work from home indefinitely. I know that Twitter and Facebook have basically said that remote work, they're going to allow that going into the future, even after this pandemic is over. Is that something that's being considered? Well, Paige, you're raising one of these um, big questions that is in the minds of, I think, everybody uh, on the planet, which is there was a world we had before the pandemic happened. 
this has changed so many things in our daily lives, not only about how we work, but how we get healthcare, about how we um, go to school, about how we consider partnerships to tackle big problems. And I, one thing I will say is that as we move into this, to the post-pandemic era, that I, I will hope we take some lessons learned about what works and what doesn't work and how we want to have a new normal, one that's more equitable, um, one that is really more grounded in this notion of, of, of this opportunity to have collective action so that we can take the best of what tech has to offer in medicine and public health and put them uh, in the pot. I'm from Louisiana and that's how we make gumbo and we make community gumbos. We put a little bit of something in the pot and it always comes out better. That's the way that um, certainly Google would like to go forward is making sure that we're taking the best of what we have to offer into improving community health. And so for us, though, just very specifically about work, it's it's that um, we really believe that there's an important component to the human interaction. And that's not just about work. It has also to do for me personally with medicine and and the way that I think people um, need that human touch and the human interaction. So we as we look forward, see it's a balance. We want to be flexible um, with our workforce. On the other hand, we also know that there's a lot to be gained from people being in person together. And so a uh, new normal um, that we're all defining in many areas and, and one of them will be work for us at Google and we're taking a deliberative, careful approach and hearing from our employees and our communities about exactly how that's going to play out over the course of time. So more to come on that story. One of the things that has become really glaringly obvious through this pandemic is our weakened public health infrastructure in the U.S. Um, and that's manifest in a lot of ways, one by public health uh, officials, local officials stepping down. Uh, but you've worked in both the public and the private sectors. Is there a role here for the private sector in helping to strengthen our public health infrastructure? Yes. You know, um, I was the health commissioner in New Orleans for a few years, and uh, I, the reality of stepping into a public health practice, I, I came out of academia, and I, I really didn't have an appreciation for how limited the resources were for local public health, but how big their responsibility is. They have a statutory authority to, to take care of the health of everyone who lives, learns, works, and plays in their community. So for me, even when I was in practicing in the seat and when I was in um, other roles, it's always been important to me that we think about how all those sectors, medicine, technology, business, public health, come together to think about what they can do to improve the health of the community. And uh, that just means that not only does, do we have to resource and support public health, especially the data infrastructure and their ability to do things like epidemiologic surveillance, we have to partner where it makes sense. And I'll give you a concrete example of how Google has done this. Uh, when, when there was a need to ramp up contact tracing in the US, we came together with Apple and with public health authorities around the world, but particularly here in the US, um, some more than 30 states now, to help them with a new digital tool that augments their ability to do contact tracing. It doesn't replace the important human work that has to happen, but it's another 21st century tool in their toolbox that is controlled by them, they have the data, but we were able to make a technology platform that then they can use to support uh, to support the important work of testing and tracing in community. And early data is showing us that it's as effective as a contact tracer in places like the UK where there's been recent data, we've been able to show that it's averted 600,000 infections and, some, and saved some 8,000 lives. So 
that tool is an example of something that that could be built with te by technology given to public health for their work to augment what they do and help to not only reduce infections but save lives so i'd love to see those kinds of partnerships continue going forward where we sort of again bring everybody brings what they have to the table to support public health and be their partner but yes we also need to see that we're strengthening public health as one of the independent and really critical sectors for health in our country and around the world well, unfortunately, we're out of time, but this was a great discussion. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Karen DeSalvo. Thank you, Paige. It's a topic I care a lot about. Well, please stay tuned. I'll be back with Delta's Dr. Henry Ting just after this short video. Welcome back. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, the health policy reporter here at the Washington Post and author of the Health 202 newsletter. And I'm pleased to welcome for my next guest, Dr. Henry Ting. Uh, just this year, he became the first ever chief health officer for Delta Airlines. Welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you, Paige. Delighted to be here with you today. Well, I know that you're a Mayo Clinic executive and you joined Delta uh, earlier this year. Was that related to the pandemic? Can you talk a little bit about what your role is now at Delta and especially as it relates to the pandemic? Yeah, so I joined Delta just this month to be Delta Airlines first chief health officer. It's also a first for US Airlines. Um, and my role is actually much bigger than the pandemic. Uh, we're going to help our um, business and our workforce uh, get through the pandemic safely for our passengers and our people. But further, um, we're going to reimagine, rethink health and well-being uh, for our entire workforce, which essentially contributes to the community and public health as well. Well, I know airlines have been in obviously a really tough posi position throughout the pandemic. Um, can you talk a little bit about balancing this tension between obviously as a business needing to make money and stay financially afloat, but then also honoring the public health recommendations of people to largely not travel over the past year? Yeah, that's a great question, Paige. Um, I think um, having worked with uh, Delta Airlines as a consultant for Mayo Clinic over the past eight months, as well as now joining Delta Airlines, um, Delta Airlines have made very, very difficult decisions and tough decisions during our toughest year. Um, but I, we've consistently made those decisions guided by our values, which is ensuring the safety and the health of our people and our passengers and customers first. And those decisions, whether it's blocking the middle seat or investing in air quality with new HEPA filters, uh, the changes in boarding process, the passing out of Perel and hand wipes, all those things were made clearly with the importance and prioritization of safety first for our people and our customers. Well, and you mentioned the policy of keeping that middle seat uh, empty, and I know that's a policy that many of your competitors didn't pursue. What led to that decision, and was that all, was that difficult to do? It, it was a difficult decision. Um, it, you know, the um, the recent uh, publications for Airlines for America published that in uh, 2020, um, airlines as industry lost 31 billion dollars. That's a huge financial um, challenge. Um, but I think Delta Airlines in our um, commitment to our people and our customers have consistently made decisions that prioritize safety. And black in the middle sea is simply one layer of safety we've implemented at Delta Airlines for our people and our passengers, something we call the Delta Care Standards. And whether you're the passenger or one of our Delta employees and people, you will see these changes 
from the moment you book a plane to the time you come to the airport board uh, in flight, as well as the time you pick up your baggage at claims. Um, and black in the middle seat uh, allows a little more distance between people. You know, we recommend, if possible, that you maintain six feet distance when you can. Um, but we know that these droplets and aerosols that can transmit coronavirus do decrease as distance increases. Um, so having that middle seat block allows for some extra distance. And this, in combination with wearing a mask and doing all the other safety protection, uh, we think makes airline travel and, and flight travel quite safe. Well, and I want to talk about vaccines, which I know many of our viewers are quite interested in, um, in in the unfolding of the immunization effort, of course. And I know Delta is hosting Georgia's largest vaccine clinic at the Delta Flight Museum. Can you tell us a little bit about that effort? Yeah, that's um, a partnership between uh, Delta Airlines as well as the uh, Georgia State, uh, Governor Kemp, and the uh, Department of Health. And we've created the largest site for mass vaccination of our public in Georgia, um, right on the Delta headquarters. Uh, it's a drive through area and it's right outside of where I'm speaking with you right now. We're anticipating vaccinating 2,000 people a day um, through that drive through site. And again, it's a, a partnership between Delta Airlines and the Georgia Department of Health so we can enhance and amplify the availability of vaccines to everybody living in the state of Georgia. Well, and I think it's clear that we're not going to see travel return to pre-pandemic levels until we see those rates of vaccination go way up. How crucial is the vaccination effort to, to both your airline and just the airline industry as a whole? Yeah, I, I think um, the path forward for all of us, not just airlines, to get back to normal life and normal work and a normal economy is vaccination um, and getting at least 70% uh, of us, 75% uh, of us vaccinated and protected from COVID. Um, but I think there are additional things uh, that we can do until the time we reach that. Um, that includes uh, availability of testing and rapid testing so that people who may have been exposed or may have symptoms of COVID are detected and then isolated so they can't transmit it to others. We also need access to good masks um, so that everybody can wear comfortable masks that fit well so that you can't transmit it to others. What I like to say is vaccines protect me. They protect me from getting COVID. Wearing a mask and physical distancing protects you and everyone else until we reach a stage of herd immunity. What about vaccinating uh, Delta employees? Uh, I'm not... Do those employees fit into essential workers groups and what in, how is the airline participating in helping those employees get vaccinated? Yeah, so at Delta Airlines, we're in close um, contact with all the states, and each state's a little different in terms of how they're um, rolling out the vaccine availability, as well as each country's different because Delta is a global airline. Um, so we're working with each state to make it available to our uh, airline workers who are customer facing. In many states, they're considered priority 1B, which are essential workers in the travel industry. Um, and when um, they're available, we're encouraging all of our employees to be vaccinated. Uh, of course, as, as we noted, last year brought huge financial losses to both your company and, and, and your competitors. Um, what kinds of changes should we expect to see in the future as related to the, the pandemic and the fallout from that? Yeah, well, I, I think, um, you know, as our business recovers, um, and I do see a path forward, 
with one, vaccines, two, rapid testing, availability of rapid testing, three, uh, availability of good mask and personal protective equipment, and four, and probably most importantly, a coordinated effort collectively by uh, public health and the private industries and our healthcare systems that we can get through this pandemic. And there's a good chance that if we continue this collective effort, that we will see a summer that may be mostly COVID free and we can return to business and life as a, in a more normal format. And we do believe that there is uh, pent up demand, that people do wanna travel and people wanna stay connected, whether it's for personal or business reasons. And we see that happening and a return of our business and hopefully normal life for all of you who may wish to travel for pleasure, to see family members, or for business. Uh, I want to talk about testing, too, because you mentioned that earlier. And I know the Biden administration briefly considered uh, a requirement for people to actually get a COVID test before getting on a domestic flight. What kind of ramifications would that have had? And are you relieved to see that that's not going to be actually a requirement? I could see sort of that being a, a difficult thing, perhaps, to provide to every traveler domestically. Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, I think um, testing is important. Um, at Delta Airlines, we've made testing available to our own employees. So many of our people are getting tested on a weekly basis, and that's without charge to them. Because we feel that they're interacting with many customers or those colleagues at the workplace. It's important to uh, detect disease early so they, before they can spread it to uh, other team members or customers. Um, we have actually piloted a testing po uh, program where if you board a flight from Atlanta to Rome or Atlanta to Amsterdam, through testing at 72 hours pre-flight and onboarding, you can avoid a quarantine in Italy or the Netherlands when you land. Um, I think domestically, um, because COVID has been quite variable in different areas and different regions, so each state has, out, has had outbreaks at a different time, I think domestic travel testing probably right now is not something we'd recommend. Uh, we think that with all the mitigation efforts and the Delta Care standards, flying on a plane is actually quite safe. And some may argue that it's maybe even safer than going to a, a sporting stadium or even the grocery store if there are people who are unmasked in your in crowded, confined areas. Um, so for domestic flights, we think um, that it's quite safe to get on a flight and testing is not necessary at this point. What about this issue of getting the vaccine and documentation for that? I know I've written a little bit about this idea of a vaccine passport where you're required to show some kind of proof, perhaps digitally, that you received the vaccine. Could you see something like that being implemented? Absolutely. I, I think this is something we have been working on. I think there are two components of that. One is the issuer of the vaccine, and those are the healthcare systems or the uh, pharmacies and the grocery stores who vaccinated a person. And they need to issue that that person has received the vaccine through a QR code. On our side, we're the vaccine verifiers. So we verify that you have the QR code and this is you. And that's the vaccine passport. We're working on that both in, from a technology as well as with the issuers to make sure that we have a common passport so that um, if you've been vaccinated, um, you're very safe to travel uh, and we want to make sure that we show that credential. We're working not just with uh, the healthcare systems and the issuers of the vaccine, but other partners in um, such as um, technology companies as well as other um, um, uh, travel agencies or uh, cruise ships um, or, or travel industry to verify that you've gotten the vaccine. And how long do you anticipate that masks will continue to be mandatory for travelers? 
Yeah, so I, I think this is a moving target. Uh, nobody has a crystal ball, um, but we are all um, looking forward to maybe a COVID-free summer and that we can get to some semblance of normal. But we do anticipate that COVID probably is not, not going to go away completely and go to zero, right? So we can see that maybe on a seasonal basis that we might need to wear masks on a seasonal basis uh, during the winter time or that we have a booster shot of the vaccine every year. And, and that may be part of our normal uh normal activities and normal life moving ahead. Um, I think that's a much better scenario than to repeat what we've experienced for the last 12 months. Well, and I know you've said the next normal will be defined by the choices we make today. What are the choices we need to be getting right? Yeah, I think, um, you know, as I reflect on sort of the, the greatest challenges and struggles we've had looking back to February of 2020 or January 2020, all of us probably remember um, sort of the difficulty around testing and availability of rapid uh, testing uh, available to anybody who was worried they were exposed or has symptoms. Then there was the availability of PPE, personal protective equipment be those masks or even um, hand hygiene uh, and wipes, disinfectant wipes uh, for surfaces. And now we're dealing with the same challenges of availability of vaccines and getting all of us vaccinated. We need to get 80% of us to the finish line, which is vaccinated. Um, all those challenges um, need coordination and private-public partnerships and a very strong public health system and very strong government support. And the uh, on the positive side, the development and the testing of vaccines has been amazing. We now have effective vaccines that have been developed in less than a year. That's been amazing. And I think if we um, reflect on what went well, what went poorly, what could have gone better, we can learn lessons about how to avoid uh, not having enough access to testing. Uh, to pe personal protective equipment and to vaccine deployment so that we can all react faster and that we don't have to have a 12-month period or longer where there's this uncertainty and a major disruption to our lives and our economy. Well, and to that point, what should airlines be doing now to prepare for the next pandemic? Um, I think airlines um, should be thinking about um, what did we learn from this pandemic and what partnerships do we need to have so that if we see something like this happening, we can mobilize and act much quicker. Um, so the things we've done, can we do that in two weeks as opposed to doing that in two months? Well, unfortunately, we're out of time, but it was a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Ting. Thank you, Paige. Well, please come back and join us today at noon Eastern. My colleague Francis Stead-Sellers will interview health and technology executives about how companies are prioritizing employee health during the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, and thanks so much for watching. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.